that, particularly the various um, prayer meetings and Bible studies that take place during the week. Uh, we do have one more mission uh, missionary with us. This is going to be Wednesday at 6.45 uh, uh, on Zoom, and the uh, fellow from South Hall, England, and so I'm looking, I haven't talked to him before, I'm looking forward to hearing from him, and so if you want to be a part of that, this month we're focusing on missions and having our missionaries speak to us. Uh, if you want to provide some additional support for our missionaries this month, we do have an offering box in the back, and you can designate an amount to the missionary, uh, and we'll be uh, giving a special offering to all of those missionaries that have been with us uh, during the month of July and August. So, look, um, I appreciate your support of that. Uh, another announcement that did make it in here is that uh, there is a crib shower for uh, Esther Nunn, uh, the Nunn family, and that's downstairs, and we'll keep that open for one more week. Some folks haven't heard about that, so that's available. That'll be downstairs, and just want to let you know that. One other thing on the way of announcement, and we'll give further detail later just to keep in mind, Labor Day is coming up before you know it. Anyway, we uh, typically on our children's programs, we'll move them up one grade, and if you're not sure about the ages and the, uh, all of that, you can... I'm going to pick on Jackie because she would know. And now she's looking at me, what do I know? Trust me, you know, and you can inform if somebody asks you a question. So you're all right. The moving up on Labor Day for the kids. Talk to your husband. He'll, he'll help you out. In any case, because he told me you knew, so you should. All right, one final thing, and that is, oh, actually two final things. If you don't have a worship need a worship folder. If you don't have one, go get one. In it, it has Psalm 67. We're going to uh, have it read like we normally do. We're going to sing it, and Blake will help us with that, and then we're going to read it aloud together as a congregation. So it may be helpful to you have the worship folder to be able to participate in that when that time comes, and we'll instruct you. The final thing I wanted to mention was next week, Lord willing, we're going to start our study in biblical doctrine. Gordon will be leading us during what we call the ministry training class. That's at 945 in the Fellowship Hall. And if you haven't been a part of it, we encourage you to do so. This is the resource that we'll be using as an explanation of biblical doctrine. Obviously, it's based on the scriptures, but we're using this as our textbook. And if you don't have one and you want to participate in the class, see me. I have extra, and I'd be glad to give you one per family. So that's starting next week. Uh, we'll go through biblical doctrine. This is a systematic approach. That means a topical approach, and it, it is a, it'll be a great reference for so, these great truths of the faith for you to know and understand. So I encourage you to be a part of that, and you'll enjoy going through that, I'm sure. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. I do want to give you a moment privately to pray, and then I'll pray for us corporately as we begin our worship of Christ 
today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now praising your holy name for who you are. I pray for myself and your people that indeed we would be drawn to Christ today in a clear way. I pray that all that we do will exalt your holy name. I pray, Father, that indeed through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, may every aspect of what we do, whether we're reading your word, singing your word, or hearing your word proclaimed, I pray that the words of Christ would fall on ears that have an ear to hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. I pray that you would bring about new life in Christ to those that are outside of Christ. For those that have heard Christ and heard his voice, I pray indeed that that familiar sound would redound in a way in which we are caused to grow in our faith. For those that are weary, for those that are burdened, I pray they would find the rest in you you alone. May we exalt in Christ, lift up Christ today. For those that have great discouragement, I pray that you give them encouragement. Those that are wayward and have walked away from you, I pray that you will bring them back into the fold. I pray, Father, that indeed in very faithless and difficult times that we'd be given great faith, great courage to stand for the truth. May you be exalted in all we do. I pray indeed that the peace of Christ would be with us in a unique way. I pray for the joy of Christ to be overflowing in our hearts as we recognize who you are and all that you have done. I pray that the love of Christ would abound and be demonstrated not only in our affections, but also in our actions, and yes, even our attitude. Pray that you would be exalted this day. May our worship of you be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Second Samuel 22 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Amen. Let's all stand together and turn in our hymn books number 656 and we'll sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 656. Breath and 
dust as to that may be, Christ Jesus it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the Turn to number 454, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place.
morning, church. May mercy, grace, and peace be multiplied to you. Please turn with me to Psalm 67. It's on page 481 of your pew Bible. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I believe it's going to be helpful as we strive to worship God in heart and deed. It's basically going to be a three-step process. Step one, I will read Psalm 67 out loud to you. Step two, Blake will lead us as we use the insert on the inside of our worship folders to sing Psalm 67. And step three, I will read Psalm 67 again out loud, but this time I want all of you to read it with me out loud together, and then I will pray for us. As I read through Psalm 67, I'm going to put a special emphasis on the use of this word we see in our text, Salah. I'm not going to say the word out loud when I see it, but I'm going to pause, take a breath, and meditate on what was just said. This is going to occur after verse 1 and verse 4 in Psalm 67. And I want you to pay close attention to this because when we read this psalm together as a congregation, we're going to do the same thing. We will pause and meditate on what God has just said to his people in his word. Psalm 1-2 communicates, Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. And that is the purpose of this term, Salah. It was originally intended as a breathing instruction to the reader to pause, take a breath, and meditate on what has been said. If I could give you an overarching theme for this psalm, it would be this. God is not just the God of Jews alone, but he is also the God of the Gentiles as well. That is... He is the God of all the nations, all the peoples. The only verse that is repeated in this psalm is, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Both times with an exclamation point. And as I think from the time that God chose one man, Abram, and told him that in him all nations or peoples of the earth will be blessed, to the time that Jesus Christ said to his 12 followers to take, or his 11 followers at that point, to take his gospel to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of all the earth, to all peoples. And then I think about today, that we can be sure that today, all around the earth, all peoples will be praising God in the sense of peoples from multiple nations, peoples from Scotland, Canada, the Philippines, and many other places. And finally, in the passage that our pastor read to us last week in Revelation chapter 5 about the Lamb who was slain to ransom for himself a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And when I think on these things, it causes me to want to praise him. Will you praise him with me today by focusing on his word? Psalm 67. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. 
Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's take our insert and stand, and it might be a new melody for some of us, but uh, again, it's a great uh, melody with great words in the psalm, and uh, we'll have Amber go ahead and play through it once for us, and then we'll pick it up on the second go-around. We'll sing verses uh, 1 and 2, which covers all five, well, five verses of Psalm 66. Go ahead. We'll begin with the text of verse 1. We will not read the subheading. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And we will pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May we be a people of great praise, a people that points the nations to Jesus Christ as the only hope to escape the wrath to come. I pray that you will use these offerings given today to glorify your name. Thank you for the abundant blessing that you have poured out upon your people here and throughout the earth. May our lives be living sacrifices to the one true God who guides and judges the nations with equity. It is in the almighty name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.
time and stand. Journey number 447, it is well with my soul. Blessed is the man who endures trials because he will receive the crown of life. James 1, 2, it is well with my soul.
And I indeed hope and pray it is well with your soul. That's ultimately what matters. Our day we're concerned about wellness, which can be helpful, beneficial. There is no greater concern you should have in your heart. That is, are you well with Jesus Christ? You have your sin nailed to the cross. Indeed, we can look and wait for his soon appearing, which could happen at any moment. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. We are turning to the next chapter, chapter 18. I reluctantly left chapter 17. I didn't overturn every stone that, that was there, and I've left a few more for you. So... I do encourage you to consider meditating on and thinking about John 17. It would be very beneficial to you. But now we move really into a darker section, if you will, chapters 18 through 20. Go through what we would call the Passion Week. That would be the suffering of Jesus Christ. It begins with his betrayal and arrest, which we'll deal with today to some degree. I'll see what we'll be able to get through. It is a narrative after all, so we're going to continue this story all the way through his resurrection in chapter 20. And the book concludes, and then, like a good preacher, he's got one more thing to say. So you have chapter 21 on the end, and I look forward to all of that. This section here that deals with the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, is found also in the parallel Gospels. And they can be helpful if you're reading along to be able to fill in the rest of the story, if you will, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. I'll reference some text from there from time to time. But there are four Gospels, right? And... They aren't identical. <clears throat> they have a purpose and a theme. A little differently than how we would normally think of a narrative of an account. We often think in, from our Western mindset, well, we have um, a chronological mindset, if you will, one to see how things progress and the details should be essentially the same. That's not so with the gospel writers. That's not the point. We wouldn't have four if, we, if that's what we needed. Instead, the gospel writers have a tendency to have an overarching theme, and that's helpful when you read it. I'm not saying it's exclusive, but there is an overarching theme that they have. And typically Matthew, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it portrays Christ as king. I'm not suggesting the other Gospels don't. I'm just saying that's his big emphasis. And hence it begins with his genealogy showing his rightful Davidic lineage here to, um, to be <coughs> the king of uh, the nations, king, uh, in following King David. In Mark, if you read that gospel, it doesn't have the genealogy, but it focuses much more on the humanity of Christ in his suffering, 
He's called the Son of Man, but that's not a human title. That's actually a divine title. So again, I'm not suggesting that they leave out any of that. It's just his emphasis is much more on suffering. Luke, Luke would be the longest of the Gospels. And Luke emphasizes really what we talked about today in Psalm 67, and that is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, of all nations, every tribe, every people, every tongue. Christ is the Savior. Now we come to the Gospel of John where we're at, and its distinction, you'll notice as we read through, it emphasizes the fact that Jesus is indeed the supreme God of the universe. Jesus is Yahweh. That's the emphasis here. And so in John, it's going to emphasize his glory as God incarnate more so than the others. Got it? They're not leaving it out. It's just the bigger emphasis. In fact, in John 20 and verse 31, in the first conclusion of John, it mentions the purpose, these things that are written, and notice the phraseology carefully, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is divine, Son of God, and he is indeed the Deliverer. That's the Christ. It's Christos in Greek. It is the word for Messiah in Hebrew. By believing that, then you would have life in his name. So it portrays Christ in a much more glorious aspect than his divine nature and his role as a deliverer or a conquering king, if you will. A recognition of this truth that Christ Jesus is Lord, God incarnate. For those that are outside of the faith, this gospel is written that you might come in, that you might truly believe. This gospel is written for those that are in Christ, that they might grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. So here it is, a gospel essentially for everyone. The application of this truth is quite extensive and and varied. I'm going to give you a few points along the way, some directions, but I encourage you to encounter the gospel yourself in a devotional meditation. And here's the question I would pose, simply this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? By truly believing that, if that is the expression of your heart, you will have life in his name. If you have any doubt or concerns about that, I commend to you his word. Spend time in it. In fact, one of my ways of of telling people about Christ is simply to ask them, go read the Gospel of John and ask, who is this? God is not hiding this information from you. Well, let's read this first section here, verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he he and his disciples had entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met 
there with his disciples. So Judas, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. And when, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I'm hearing some sort of feedback. mic back on. I didn't know if it was getting a loop through our system. But in any case, all right. Um, let's go ahead then, if I can pull myself together, to pray over this text. I don't want to be distracted from it. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you will give us insight to your word, that we may hear and heed indeed this word today. May it have a significant impact on all of your saints. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Now, if you look at this text, the way I've carved it up here, we'll see what we can get through today. But in verse 11, he concludes with this section, shall I not drink this cup? The cup that he is talking about is the cup of God's wrath. Not a cup of blessing, but a cup of wrath. The just wrath that is to be poured out against all who are in rebellion against God. Jesus takes on that cup the way John portrays it to remind us one aspect of it. Yes, there will be great suffering. Yes, there will be great betrayal. Yes, there will be great hypocrisy. Uh, torture will go on. Jesus Christ will die on the cross. All of that. But he is not doing that as a victim. He's doing so as a victor. And so drinking the cup of the fullness of God's wrath that is rightly deserved for you and me, Jesus Christ takes this on in a purposeful way. This is something that he is determined to do, and he takes this cup as a victor, not a victim. All of those present this evening, this Thursday evening, during this Passover season, 
they may have concluded at that time that Christ was just a victim. He is going to be betrayed by an insider, Judas, if you will. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be beaten, tortured. There's an illegal trial that's going to go on. And in the end, he's going to be crucified. And the mob is now against him. The mob that was once for him in saying, Hosanna, that is, save us now, God, will cry out, crucify him. All of this, though, that transpires, occurs because of the divine purpose and plan of God. God has planned this all along. We say in our confession, London Baptist of 1689, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever that come to pass. All of these events that are mentioned here have come to pass because God has purposed them. And notice one of the clue, again, this is just a statement and a phrase of what we observe in Scripture. If you notice here, Judas betraying him, this is done to do what? Fulfill his word. Nothing happens by happenstance, not even in your own life. (laughs) We can see this clearly here in the life of Christ. But I would expand that to say that all things are under his sovereign control. All unfolding events are an expression of God's decree in time. He has purposely planned it all along. And now it is a time for this very thing to unfold. Peter, who is here in the upper room, preaches a sermon, if you'll remember, shortly hereafter, with great courage at Pentecost, and he proclaims to the people of Israel in Acts chapter 2, 22. I'll read it for you. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as yourself As you yourselves know, remember, this is what Gospel of John leading up to chapter 13 was all about. Here's the ministry of Christ, the seven signs that he did that John records specifically. He did many more signs and wonders that God did through him. It is this Jesus then delivered up, verse 23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified And killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Because he actually did no sin. He would not decay in the grave. It is a great working out of God's divine plan, including all of these events that surround it. The betrayal, the hypocrisy of Judas all along, this gathering then of these people here at this event when they want to arrest them. In all of this, Christ is not the victim. He's the victor. 
He's in charge. He has determined to drink this very cup of wrath. The cup of wrath which you, by the way, deserve. There's a song I... I'm not going to sing it for you, but <laughs> I'd like to. But I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on that cross in disgrace. But Jesus Christ, my Lord, took my place. God has planned this from the very beginning to drink this cup of wrath Later on in the same sermon, Peter says, Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Not a victim, but Lord, that is Yahweh, demonstrating he indeed is God, and he is Christ, not the victim, but the deliverer, the conqueror. These people involved in this narrative as we read it, however, are not dupes. They're doing really what they want to do from their own heart. They mean what they do for absolute evil. They hate God, they rebel against him, and they orchestrate this whole arrest and betrayal of Jesus Christ from their own heart their own initiative. God is not standing on their neck making them do what they do not want to do. He's allowing them to do precisely what they want to do. In theology, we call this the doctrine of compatibility. Men freely do what they want to do. But always remember this, they're always under a sovereign God. God is sovereign then, he is sovereign now. And people will freely do what they want to do. They will purpose evil in their heart and commit great evil. But be assured of this, that God has a purpose for all, even the evil in your own life. It may hard to swallow. It may be painful. It was for Christ. I assure you, he was the suffering servant. Read more about it in the Gospel of Mark. It really hurt. He suffered great affliction. But God had a purpose. And this indeed is the greatest good for the salvation for all who would believe that indeed Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is indeed Christ, the Deliverer the victor. John wants us to see that then in this narrative that it might otherwise be overlooked that all along God incarnate, Jesus Christ, is in control of the situation. The people that are involved in this, whether it's Judas or the soldiers that come along, the priests that are there, they think that they're orchestrating this all on their own initiative and under their own control. God has not abandoned the world and allowed the world to do whatever it wants to do. He is moving it towards a certain end, and that is that the glory of Christ would be seen. The glory of Christ would be known, this victor who will drink this cup of wrath for all who believe in him.
And remember that then as we walk through the scene of the story, and I'll read some of it and point a, a bit out here, but this overarching theme is going to be emphasized, and that is indeed Jesus is Lord, that he is God, and that he is the Savior, the Deliverer, the Christ. Notice how John is going to masterfully weave this in to this narrative and look for those threads as we recount this chronology. Notice verse 1. Here, it, and, it, and by the way, when you read a narrative, it's sometimes it's helpful to kind of break it up in, in scenes, if you will. Little vignettes so you can get an idea because it doesn't include absolutely everything, but he's taking a glance at different things along the way. And the first glance I found in verse 1 here is a presentation of Christ to his enemies. Notice the phrase here in verse 1 of chapter 18. It sets the time frame, and that is, when he had spoken. When he had spoken, then these events take place. This is a reference, this when he had spoken is this dialogue of private instruction that he has given to his disciples, really beginning uh, uh, chapter 14 and maybe some of chapter 13, all the way up to chapter 16. And then it is followed by this high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Jesus is in charge all along. None of this is going to happen until he's done giving the final instructions to his disciples, sending Judas out from his midst and providing this high priestly prayer for his disciples. He's in control of all of the events leading up to this point. And so when he is done speaking, then these things will occur. His opponents have tried to stop him in vain. If you remember reading through the various Gospels, you'll remember many events. There's a time in which they wanted to push him off of a cliff, and yet he just walked through their midst. They couldn't stop him. There was a time they wanted to stone him. That means to kill him. They picked up stones, but they couldn't find him. He just walked away. Jesus is not concerned, he's not panicked, that they're going to somehow interrupt his teaching of his disciples here at this critical moment when he must give them final instructions before his betrayal. He has this private meeting. He's not worried about getting broken into. They're not going to break into it because he is ultimately in control. He is following a timeline of his own. Look back to one chapter, chapter 17. He speaks of this timeline as his hour. <clears throat> it's that specific, beloved. In verse 1 of chapter 17, after he had finished teaching him, that's the spoken the words there, then he lifted his eyes up to his prayer, right? Father, and notice what he says, the hour has come. He's on his own timeline. Now is the time. The hour to do what? To suffer? Oh, he calls it glorification. Again, John's emphasizing the glory of Christ in, even in this time of great betrayal and suffering and death in which the Son would glorify him. 
He has given him, notice this, authority. He's not standing here in weakness, which somebody could capture him and control him. No, he is standing here as a victor who is going to drink this cup of wrath on purpose. This is an hour of triumph, not an hour of tragedy. Prior to this, Jesus had said, my hour has not yet come. Because he is in control of every moment, even this very day. Well, when he's finished, he's finished teaching. He's finished praying. And then note here, back to our text, it says that he is going out with his disciples. This is an intentional act on his part. He's intentionally getting ready to engage in the confrontation of those who would execute him. He is intentionally exposing himself to harm's way. Now, he is in control all along, and you might think, okay, well, he's in this private room. They don't know where he's at. Well, now he is going out for this very hour, and he knew what the stakes were. In fact, his disciples, who he said, come on out with me, and they're going out in the open to be exposed around Jerusalem, if you will. They know the danger, too. If you want to find that, I'll read it for you. You can look back a few chapters in chapter 11. Here's the section where Jesus, again, is going to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem in Judea. The folks are uh, the religious leader of the day. They were, they were intentionally uh, against, hostile towards Jesus. And here his disciples are with him in chapter 11. This is the chapter that deals with the resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus is going to go and take his disciples there. And he tells them in verse 7 of chapter 11, let us go to Judea again, to that region, if you will, around Jerusalem. His disciples said to him, Rabbi, the the Jews, that is the religious leaders of of Judaism, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And, And you're going there again? In other words, they wanted to kill you here. Now you're going to go right in the midst? Jesus' answer is, Are there not 12 hours in a day? Can I tell you this? He's controlling every single hour of the day. You don't need to panic. Oh, you must do things that are responsible and right and good, but in the end, do you understand that Jesus Christ is is Lord and he is Christ? Now, if if you do not recognize that he is Lord... And that he is Christ, you should be in great, great fear and panic. Absolutely. But come to him. Recognize who he is. Jesus' response, he says, If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. Who is the light of the world? It is indeed Jesus Christ. And this section here is quite interesting. Here we have Thomas, which we'll pick up again. He's often called Doubting Thomas. We'll deal with that when we come to that text post-resurrection. But in any case, here you get a glimpse of Thomas, though. 
It's not a wavering person. Maybe this might challenge some of our thoughts about calling him Doubting Thomas because here's a pretty courageous statement he makes in verse 16. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us also go that we might die with him. He's not saying it in frustration. He knows to follow Christ means to pick up your cross and follow him, and it may cost your life. Can I tell you this right now? Do you want to follow Christ? It may cost you everything. It may cost you your physical life. It may cost you your material possessions. It may cost you other things that you might have of value. If that is, too, if that is more important to you, walk away. Leave. You're not following Christ. This demonstrates the affections of his heart that in this circumstance, Christ said, let's go and we'll go with him, even if it costs us our life. This is his allegiance to Christ. I think we can rightly infer him leading them out then into the open around Judea, which in Jerusalem, in which he was. Back to our text here in, in chapter 18, leading them out, they knew what the stakes were. They knew where, what exposures that they had, but they were not going to stumble because they were with the light. They were with Christ. Christ wanted them to be with him at this time. And I think I can infer from this text, you may agree, but ultimately, or disagree, but that's okay. Uh, I won't push this too hard. But him taking them out exposes them, of course, to danger, which will find that he will protect them in this circumstance. But it also provides a great witness, an eyewitness to all that happened. A, very, uh, a, a, um, a verified account of what happens. Jesus isn't alone. He is with his inner circle, his disciples. They will see. They will see the betrayal and the rest by wicked men, including one of their own, who has turned, who they really don't know. Uh, and we'll look at that text in a second. That they, they really don't know that the, he has turned yet. That is Judas. But they will find out, indeed, who that man is. There'll be eyewitnesses of it. There'll be eyewitnesses of these wicked men. They will see Jesus then both as a lamb and a lion in both settings. So the disciples go out with him. They're exposed to danger. In chapter 18, it identifies a, a geographical place, this Brook Kidron. I think this does help root this narrative in, in the historical reality of where and what was going on. But actually, in addition to that, particularly for these that were familiar with the Old Testament. Just to say this Brook Kidron, it isn't just a bottom section there between um, uh, the Mount Olives and the place that they were at. It is also a ravine that was familiar. A lot of things happened there. MacArthur mentions in Scripture, this Kidron Valley had been part of another scene. A betrayal and treachery. 
David fled Jerusalem after Absalom's rebellion. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Asa is noted there in 1 Kings 15. Josiah, 2 Kings 23. Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29. They had burned idols there in connection with the various reforms. This was a familiar geographical place and one that smacked a of betrayal. And in our text here, Jesus crosses over that very ravine. By this time, it would have been perhaps an empty, dry bed. And there may have, and some assume also, drainage from Jerusalem from the blood of the Passover, which you don't think might be much. But by this time, historians tell us it may have been as many as a quarter of a million lambs. That's a lot of blood shed, a lot of blood that would drain, go down into this particular valley. And here you have Jesus Christ and his disciples crossing that very brook of betrayal. Our text says that he goes into a garden, and you know the garden, don't you? You've heard it from the other Gospels. It is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is a garden on the other side of this ravine. It's on the slopes of Mount Olive, where there would have been olive groves, obviously why they called it Mount Olives, gardens, if you will, that encompass the various people who are uh, preparing that crop. It's the Garden of Gethsemane, we find from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It means oil press. John's point in mentioning all of this is setting a stage for the next scene. And I hope you see it. Jesus is not hiding. He's not running away. He's going to a very familiar place. It is a place that has some seclusion that is away from the crowds, and we'll see why in a second why that's important. There aren't huge crowds around, just his own disciples and the crowd that will come to seek him. But it's not a secret hiding place. The text will reveal for us this is a well-known place. He isn't hiding. isn't hiding. He has presented himself as a victor to drink this cup of wrath. Back to our text in verse 2 of chapter 18. You'll see that very plot unfold. It mentions Judas who betrayed, betrayed him. Note here, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas is mentioned here. He's highlighted among those that come out to arrest Jesus. It was just a short time ago that Judas was disclosed for its hypocrisy. Not by the disciples. They didn't know about it. But by Jesus. Remember, John is going to demonstrate that even here, Jesus know, this is not a surprise that Judas is now standing before him to betray him because Jesus knows this all along. Let me walk through a few texts if you want to see this. John chapter 13, just a few chapters back. Here, in G here, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet here, early in this upper room. And he gives them a statement 
about how this relates to spiritual cleansing. In verse 11 of chapter 13, he doesn't speak to all of them, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. This is prior to all of this. This is prior to sending Judas away. Here Jesus is in the upper room, and Jesus knows that he is not spiritually clean. And why, verse 18 of the same chapter, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, that is, chosen for life. But the scriptures would be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is the betrayal. This is hypocrisy. This is fulfilled from Scripture. Did Remember how he began? That God has ordained all that is going to come to pass. This has been not only spoken of by Christ, but written down in Holy Scripture way before it would even happen. It will happen. This is what we mean by the ordaining of God. Verse, and it says, verse 19, I'm telling you this now, he's in the upper room, right? Telling before his disciples, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. Who is the I am he? That I am God. That I am Lord. I'm telling you ahead of time. Ahead of what? Of chapter 18. I'm telling you now before we walk out in the garden that I know that we're going to and Judas is going to show up to betray me. I'm telling you ahead of time that will happen. Jesus indeed is Lord. And see how John has woven this together so that we would know that Jesus is Lord and that is the greatest application could ever be. Beloved, do you know that Jesus Christ is Lord? He is the sovereign Lord of all. It's demonstrated here. It it couldn't unfold any other way. He wrote it down before it happened. This is not a magic trick. This is the sovereign God who has foreordained this very thing to happen. The very free will of Judas controlled by his rebellious heart. God has orchestrated all of this even this evil, greatest evil for good. Verse 21 of the same chapter, after saying these things, he was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He knew which one. They did not. They questioned him because in their own heart they said, well, um, is, it, is it me? And I think that's a good question. To examine your own heart. Do I have, <laughs> am I aligned with that kind of rebellion against the Lord? It's a good question. Jesus tells them specifically in verse 26, it is he whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, this was a tradition in how they would eat, dipping the bread. This was being an honorable thing to do. He gave it to who? Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, that is into Judas. And Jesus told him, what you're going to do, 
due quickly. He knew it. He sent him away. Satan filled his heart. And look what the text says in verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. <laughs> he just told them why he said it to them. But they looked at Judas, by the way. He would have been the, the best among them. I mean, compared to Peter? That fool who was always saying and doing crazy things? Here you have Judas. They trusted him. They gave him the money. They looked up to him. He would have been the tall, dark, and handsome one. He would have been the good guy. They, they heard what Christ said, but they just didn't believe it. Is that even possible? Satan comes as an angel of light, by the way. I'm not suggesting anybody with a good character and nature is necessarily bad. But just don't be deceived by them. Jesus knew, however, what's in his heart. No one else knew. Judas comes to Jesus then, back to our text in chapter 18. He comes to him, he, he is there, and the other gospels fill in some of the details there. Judas will, as we know, and have described it as the Judas kiss, right? He gives him... A sign of affection, a kiss on the cheek, if you will. In that culture, to kiss on the cheek would have been an intimate greeting, okay? Kissing on the hand might have been that a respect of a friend, a servant might kiss on the feet. Here is the most intimate engagement, a friendly gesture in our culture, maybe we'd shake the hand and pat on the back type thing. Well, at least that was before COVID. But anyway, <laughs> you get the point. Judas fooled the disciples. He may have been fooling them even now with this entourage. Imagine this setting. The disciples are in witnessing all of this. They had witnessed Jesus sending them out. They didn't know why he sent away. They really didn't know. But now it's starting to dawn on them, and they're starting to see the hypocrisy unfold as Judas is now standing not with them, but the band who is against Jesus, the band of enemies. Notice our text, Jesus is instrumental in this in verse 3 of chapter 18. It says he's procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and he went there with, as John notes, lanterns and weapons. So here's this entourage then. Jesus goes out with his 11 to the garden. There's no other crowd around. It's a familiar place to Judas. He knows Judas, if he's going to find him on this evening, it would probably be out there. We can tell from the other gospel writers, too, that Jesus would often go to this garden, make his home there, perhaps camp out quite a bit. Remember, he didn't have a home, a house, as we would think, that was permanently fixed, didn't need one. But he would often be in this garden and perhaps retire there at night as well. 
So who comes? It says in our text, a band of soldiers. That's conveying a Greek word which we can deduce means about 600. So get your mindset on what's showing up here with Jesus and the 11. Here's 600 trained soldiers. Notice also it says officers. Doesn't give us the number, but probably quite a few. These would have been what we would think of as the temple police right next door. They came with the soldiers. They came with the police. And then notice here it says they have the chief priests and the Pharisees. So you have the members of the Sanhedrin, the religious political class described by John as the Jews, including the Pharisees. That was essentially be the lawyers. They're there as well. So they have a whole group of them. <clears throat> Matthew, in his gospel, just simply calls it, in chapter 26, a great crowd. There's no, no doubt a, a large entourage there made up of these officials that are specifically noticed, Judas leading the charge, but beyond that, perhaps also a great crowd of supportive or at least curious people. I don't know precisely a number, but probably it could be very well more than a thousand people show up to take one man. <laughs> This is to apprehend a single person. Why such force? They could have apprehended him on, on many occasions, could they not? He was out and about, teaching in the temple. In fact, one time, actually twice, as far as I uh, reckon from Scripture, he went through the temple and overturned the tables. They could have grabbed him then. Why such force? Because Jesus isn't any just one person, and John wants to make that clear. They have to bring out an army of enemies against him, of all kinds. This single insider portrayer, this, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the chief priests are there, the temple police are there, and soldiers, armed soldiers. Our text says that they have weapons and torches. They bring out clubs, they bring out swords, and they bring out torches. It's ironic as I read it. <laughs> Do you think any of those instruments could afflict damage on the king of king who will rule the nations with the rod of iron? Do you think these implements of war will do anything to the Lord Jesus Christ, who John describes in the book of Revelation as having a sharp sword coming out of his mouth? And they would wield some little sword. These torches, are they going to really help illuminate and find the very light of the world? No, I think the irony here is intentional. They bring their little play toys to go up against God. It's no match. I can imagine John just recounting this. You've got to be kidding. You're going to confront this one with that? They have no chance. 
They're all lined up with no chance. Jesus Christ has already taught his disciples that very thing. John 10, 17, I'll read it. He will explain to his disciples that I lay down my life that I may take it up again. That's his purpose. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. He is the authority of God to do that very thing. Jesus is the one in authority. Jesus is in absolute control of this entire time. I think I have time to, to give you one more vignette. These men think that they're in control. They're ignorant fools. Jesus is going to demonstrate that this is not a tragedy, but this is a triumph in just three days. For now, I'll just conclude with this. Verse 4 of chapter 18. Note the phraseology that John reminds us of to demonstrate the power of Christ. Then Jesus, verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him. He knew all of it ahead of time. He asked them, who do you seek? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. Note, they pull out Judas here. Judas who betrayed him. He was standing with him. And here's it directly. And Jesus, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Knowing all that would happen, again, demonstrates his omniscience as what? As God. He knows exactly. Because this has been decreed from eternity past. It couldn't happen any other way. Jesus knows ahead of time, and he takes this initiative for this arrest and even ask them, standing before him in all authority and power, just simply saying, who do you seek? He knew who they sought. He was identifying himself to them because they didn't know. And there was another reason we'll get into that next week. But nevertheless, he asked them, who do you seek? And then they give the... Um, uh, they give their instructions that they were instructed to do. Specifically, they were to seek Jesus of Nazareth. And his response here, our text says, I am he. The Greek is actually ego emi. We put the he in there to help supply for English so we can understand. But you know what he is saying here? This is the tetragrammaton of Hebrew. What he's saying is, I am God. I am. That's all he is. When Moses asks God, who's going to send me? He says, I am. That's enough. It demonstrates the very power of Christ. In John's gospel, he specifically points out 
seven associations where, where uh, Jesus declares that he is, I am. He says, I am the bread. I am the light. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And here he just says, I am. This is so startling. The response is they all fall backward. A thousand of them. They're blown away, literally, by the word of his power. It's a shocking statement on a human level. They're standing in all authority, so they think. They have the authority of the Roman government who agrees with them. They have the authority of the religious government. They have the authority of somebody who thinks he's a good citizen in society. All of them lined up against him on a human level. And here you just have the simple spoken word of Christ, I am. It is the I am who spoke the world into existence. It is the I am who continues to hold things together even this second by what? By the word of his power. And when that word is spoken, it just knocks them down. The very breath of Christ. It is another display of his almighty power. He is not helpless he is voluntarily surrendering himself to these men who have no real authority, who have no real weapons that could come against him. They cannot bind him without his divine consent. That's what John wants us to see. They will bind him because he will consent. Not because they can He will do so because he has a purpose. And his purpose is to take the wrath of God, described as a cup, and drink it down to the dregs for everyone who will believe in him. And you will have life only because Christ drank this cup. And if you're not in Christ, you will drink it. And this is an example of what it will look like. Absolute betrayal from people who tell you, like they told Judas, oh, you're a good person. Absolute failure, all of these people in their own political ideas and ideologies, their own religious practices, and their own weapons of war, they're all going to fail. Christ drank the cup. Trust in Christ. And you, too, will be spared of the wrath to come. Let us pray. Father, I pray we would see the glory of Christ as John has portrayed portrayed it in this holy scripture, this account, this narrative. I pray that these things that are written through the work of your spirit would become 
real and relevant to your people even this day. May we have our hearts changed, affections, attitudes, and actions because of who Christ is. I pray that you would give great courage and conviction to your people. Bring about an idea of, com of uh, condemnation to those that are outside of Christ. And great joy for those who repent and trust in Christ that indeed you have borne the wrath to come. I pray we would find our refuge in Christ and Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Beloved, I'm going to give you a moment now to think on these things. Take a moment where you're at. Think about the great I am. Take a moment even now. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you from this time forth and forevermore. Amen and amen. We're dismissed. Amen.